Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, the book of Acts, chapter two, continued. We're going to continue today in Acts chapter 2. Now we're spending an inordinate amount of time in this chapter because there's an inordinate amount of information contained here concerning one of the most monumental events in human history, the arrival of God's Holy Spirit to indwell God's worshipers. But also because there are underlying scriptures that form the basis for Peter's thought-provoking argument to accept the deity of Yeshua and his position as Lord and Messiah. I have no doubt that this elegant speech that Peter gives is a result of the training he received at the feet of Jesus. For only a Jewish scholar with intimate knowledge of the Torah could have pieced this together. And Peter was no Torah scholar. He was a common Galilean, a blue-collar fisherman. We're going to examine some of that scriptural foundation today that Yeshua must have taught Peter. So, keep those Bibles handy. Well, let's review a few points from last week, if only briefly. First, what is called Pentecost in English is Shavuot in Hebrew, and it's the fourth in the series of the seven biblical feasts that God ordained at Mount Sinai. Now, originally, Shavuot was an agricultural feast that celebrated the harvest of the wheat crop. But later on, Jewish tradition added the meaning that it was the day that Moses received the Torah on Mount Sinai, which I think is quite likely. The Jewish commentaries and rabbinic midrash about the giving of the Torah to Moses on on Pentecost, Shavuot, tended to focus on the elements that excited the senses. The fire and the flames, this ear-piercing noise, and, and the many voices of God that represented all human languages. Now, this notion of the Torah arriving in this manner on Shavuot 1,300 years earlier had become a given in Jewish society. It was universally accepted in Judaism as truth. It was woven into Jewish thought. So when we read Acts chapter 2, we can more readily see that Luke wrote about the mysterious events of this particular Pentecost, Shavuot, that follows Messiah's ascension to heaven with that understanding. And shortly I'm going to point out how Peter did the same. Now another point I made from last week was to understand that to Peter, the advent of Messiah and the arrival of the Holy Spirit to indwell humans signaled the prophesied entry into the last days. And with equal equal importance, it signaled the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now he quotes the prophet Joel and some psalms to make his point. But he also has in mind, quite obviously, Isaiah. Which although he doesn't directly quote, he borrows some of Isaiah's prophetic thoughts 
Specifically, he borrows from Isaiah 2, 55, and 56. And since we've already looked in earlier lessons at Isaiah 2, we're going to talk a little bit about Isaiah 55 and 56 today. Yet another matter that we took up last week was the purpose of defining a pivotal biblical term, lawlessness. Now, evangelical Christians immediately tend to think of the coming Antichrist as the lawless one. And so, they envision a very bad man who scoffs at societal laws or sees himself above the law. Someone like a tyrant or an outlaw or a gang member. But that is an incorrect mental picture. In fact, biblically speaking, the term lawless applies to all who turn their backs on God's Torah. The Greek word for law is nomos. And for lawless, without law, outside the law, it is nomos. Now I urge you to commit those two Greek words to memory. It shouldn't be terribly hard to do. Because English uses similar grammatical word structure. Example. We call a set of agreed-to ethical principles moral. And the lack of adherence to proper ethical morals, amoral, without morals. Amoral, however, is not the same as immoral. Immoral means a person recognizes the ethical principles but decides to break them. However, an amoral person recognizes no ethical principles as valid, binding, or pertaining to them. So nomos and anomos work exactly the same way. Anomos does not mean to break the law. It means to refuse to recognize the law as valid or pertaining to oneself. But what's essential for us to remember is that in the Bible the term law is always referring either to God's law or to Hebrew traditions that purport to convey the underlying principles of God's law. And the only biblical law that exists from God's perspective is the law of Moses, the Torah. So lawless or lawlessness in the Bible is not referring to breaking of societal laws or international law or any set of laws that are man-made. Now I don't want you to think that this understanding that is a foundational belief and teaching of at Seed of Abraham Ministries concerning the continuing relevance of the Torah law is a unique one for us. F.F. Bruce in his new international commentary on the book of Acts, says this about the use of the word lawless in the Bible. Lawless men are meant in the sense of being outside of the law of Israel. And what is the law of Israel? The Torah. The law of Moses. So before we reread part of Acts chapter 2, let's move from theory to practice as I hit you right between the eyes with an inescapable and uncomfortable reality.
that each believer is faced with. Being labeled in the Bible as anomos is always a wicked, negative thing. Old and New Testaments. And sadly, dangerously, I think, most of Christianity today, just like the Romans who crucified Christ, say that God's Torah, the law of Moses, doesn't pertain to them. Thus, most of Christianity today, by every biblical standard and definition, has classified itself and proudly proclaims to be a nomos. Without God's law. I'll let you ponder that as we move along. Let's reread part of Acts. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 22. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1362. Acts chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 22 to 36. Men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua from Nazareth was a man demonstrated to you to have been from God by the powerful works and miracles and signs that God performed through him in your presence. You yourselves know this. This man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge and through the agency of persons not bound by the Torah, you nailed him up on a stake and you killed him. But God's raised him up, freed him from the suffering of death. It was impossible that death could keep its hold on him. For David says this about him. I saw Adonai always before me, for he's at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. For this reason my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, and now my body too will live on in a certain hope you will not abandon me to Sheol, or let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You, have, you fill me with joy by your presence. Now brothers, I know I can say to you frankly, that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, since he was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn an oath to him that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, he was speaking in advance about the resurrection of the Messiah. That it was he who was not abandoned in Sheol and whose flesh did not see decay. God raised up this Yeshua. We're all witnesses of it. Moreover, he has been exalted to the right hand of God has received from the Father what He promised, namely, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and has poured out this gift which you are both seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says, Adonai said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, a footstool at your, for your feet. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know beyond doubt that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Yeshua whom you executed on a stake. Now that's really hitting between the eyes. Verse 22 begins with men of Israel. Listen to this. Some Bibles say it only slightly differently. Now remembering that to Luke and to Peter, the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, Chavuot, is the second coming of the Torah. Accomplished in essentially the same way that the Jewish religious leaders and teachers said had happened at Mount Sinai with Moses, then we need to be alert 
as to why Peter chose the words he did to speak to this huge crowd of bewildered Jews, religious Jews, who were in Jerusalem, some journeying extraordinarily long distances, in obedience to God's commandment to come to the temple for Shavuot. Listen to the words of Moses as he recalls the events of Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 5.1. Then Moshe called to all Israel and said to them, Listen, Israel, to the laws and rulings which I am announcing in your hearing today so that you will learn them and take care to obey them. Adonai, our God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. Now a few verses later in the same setting, During the same speech to the Israelites, Moses said this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Therefore, listen, Israel. Take care to obey so that things will go well with you, so that you will increase greatly as Adonai, the God of your ancestors, promised you by giving you a land flowing with milk and honey. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear Israel, Adonai our God, Adonai is one. And you are to love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, all your being, and all your resources. And by the way, even though we read the word Adonai in our complete Jewish Bibles and the word Lord in virtually all English Bibles that I've ever come across, that is not the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew is the word Y-H-W-H, yud Hey vav Hey Yahweh or as I think, Yehoveh. That's right. God's formal name is used in every instance. Not the rather generic Lord or Adonai in Hebrew that we read in our modern Bibles. It is common in all societies, in all ages, to invoke phrases and sayings that are easily recognizable by every citizen. Sayings that evoke memories and and mental pictures for us, cherished or solemn. People, of places, of events in the past. In America, I dare say in most of the world, one has to only invoke the words 9-11 or World Trade Center and your audience fully understands your context, any comparisons you're, you're making. And so it was for Luke as he quotes Peter. The Jews hearing Peter instantly grasp the connection when Peter says in Hebrew, Shema Israel, listen Israel. And he then goes on in paraphrase of Moses to explain the very nature of God and his unity. Only this time it's in relation to the Son of God, Yeshua. And of course not all the Jews present agreed with Peter's proposed connection between God and Yeshua or between Mount Sinai and what they just witnessed happen on Mount Zion in in Jerusalem. And since we're on the subject of Moses and the pattern of Mount Sinai being repeated at Pentecost, I'm going to expound just a bit on something I quoted from last week. Numbers 11.25 Adonai came down in a cloud and spoke to him, Moses, took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 leaders. And when the spirit came to rest on them, they prophesied, but then not afterwards. Now I pointed out last week that this event in Numbers 11 set the pattern for 
what happened at Pentecost in Acts 2. What I failed to point out is just how nearly identical these two events happened, both centered on the Holy Spirit. And although this opens up its own theological can of worms, we're going to open that can just a wee bit and hopefully close the lid before too many crawl out. Now notice that the 70 elders began prophesying. That is, they began speaking ecstatic speech. But then not afterwards. Meaning they spoke this way for perhaps minutes or hours and then it ended. It was the same for the 12 disciples and the 120 believers that were there at Mount Zion. That is, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began to talk ecstatic speech. In this case, employing different languages. But there's no record in the Bible or elsewhere, not even a hint, not an implication, that all of these believers who were speaking in tongues in foreign languages, in the immediate aftermath and as a consequence of the Holy Spirit event, continued to do so for more than a few minutes or hours. That is, just like Moses' 70 elders, they prophesied using foreign languages, but not afterwards. Paul says that speaking in tongues is one of several possible gifts that one can receive as a result um, of the Holy Spirit indwelling. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I've got it written here, but turn it there if you've got it. I'm going to give you a second to get there because I want you to read this along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1. But brothers, I do not want you to go on being ignorant about the things of the Spirit. You know that when you were pagans, no matter how you felt you were being led, you were being led astray to idols, which can't speak at all. Therefore, I want to make it clear to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Yeshua is cursed. And no one can say, Yeshua is Lord, except by the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. Now, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit gives them. Also, there are different ways of serving, but it's the same Lord being served. And there are different modes of working, but it is the same God working them all in everyone. Moreover, to each person is given the particular manifestation of the Spirit that will be for the common good. To one, through the Spirit, is given a word of wisdom. To another, a word of knowledge in accordance with the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To yet another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles to another prophecy to another the ability to judge between spirits to another the ability to speak in different kinds of tongues and to yet another the ability to interpret tongues one and the same Spirit as at work in all these things, distributing to each person as he chooses. So, speaking in tongues is one of a range 
of possible gifts from the Holy Spirit. It is obvious from Paul's perspective that the gift of speaking in tongues is not universal among the legitimate believers and that the Holy Spirit chooses to whom he shall give each particular gift. Now, not only in our day, but in Paul's, this issue of speaking in tongues as a sign of having received the Holy Spirit evokes great passion and strong disagreement. The believers' fellowship at Corinth, where Paul was, was struggling with this. No doubt with much dissension and bad feelings towards one another. So in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul attempts to give this issue some balance and some context. In 1 Corinthians 14, since you're right there, just flip a couple pages. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at 14.1, Paul gives the most wise advice. Pursue love. Begin with that. Pursue love. However, keep on eagerly seeking the things of the Spirit. Especially seek to be able to prophesy. For someone speaking in a tongue is not speaking to people but to God. Because no one can understand since he is uttering mysteries in the power of the Spirit. But someone prophesying is speaking to people. Edifying, encouraging, comforting them. A person speaking in a tongue does edify himself, but a prophecy, a person prophesying edifies the congregation. I wish you would all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you would all prophesy. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless someone gives an interpretation so that the congregation can be edified. Brothers, suppose I come to you now speaking in tongues. How can I be a benefit to you unless I bring you some revelation of, or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even less with lifeless musical instruments such as a flute or a harp, how will anyone recognize the melody if one note can't be distinguished from another one? And if the bugle gives an unclear sound, who will be ready for battle? It's the same with you. How will anyone know what you're saying unless you use your tongue to produce intelligible speech? You'll be talking to the air. So my position on this challenging issue of speaking in tongues is this. Speaking in tongues is a real, valid, ongoing, valuable spiritual gift. But just because this gift happened at a particular Pentecost to the 120 believers and 12 disciples and only lasted for a short time apparently, that doesn't mean that it's automatic that every new believer from then forward would speak in tongues. At Pentecost it happened for a specific divine purpose. See, Jerusalem was filled with diaspora Jews coming from all over the Roman Empire. They spoke different languages. Moses, or rather Moses, most did not speak Hebrew. Probably not even Aramaic. It is my speculation that if all the Jews at Mount Zion spoke Hebrew or even Aramaic, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that day that caused this speaking in tongues probably wouldn't have happened as it did because it wouldn't have served any useful purpose. 
Just as at Mount Sinai, when God wanted people of every language to understand His Torah, so God wanted every Jew present at Pentecost to hear and perceive what was happening in His or her own language. The speaking in tongues is one of several unique and specific gifts of the Spirit. And having or not having this particular gift has nothing to do with one's level of faith or personal merit. It's a sovereign decision of God for whatever purpose He has for you or maybe in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. But the use of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues and interpreting must be proper, must not be contrived, and it should not ever be divisive. Nor should we judge one another on account of having this gift or not having this gift. And Paul goes to great lengths to explain this to the Corinthians. In fact, Paul Paul goes on to say he feels that prophesying is a greater and more useful gift than speaking in tongues. Let me also mention that the New Testament that in the New Testament the word prophesy takes on a different meaning from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, most of the time, not always, prophesying involved predicting the future and or establishing new new scripture because this was a word from God. But in the New Testament, predicting the future is the exception when it comes to the meaning of prophesying. In Christ's era, prophesying meant to teach. It meant to expound upon God's word, existing scripture, in an inspired or, or profound way. The belief in the era of Paul was that God's word to mankind was complete. It was locked up. The books that formed the Hebrew Bible, and especially the prophets, represented the entirety of God's word to mankind. Thus, Bible and Torah teachers were said to be prophesying when they taught. Not predicting the future, but also not adding to the Holy Scripture. Usually it simply meant interpreting what the Bible, the Old Testament, had to say about any matter, including the future. And that was essentially what Hebrew Midrash was attempting to do. So in the New New Testament Bible speak, as your Torah teacher, it could be said that I am prophesying to you, the congregation, In modern terms, I'm interpreting the Bible and teaching it to you. In verses 23 and 24, Peter speaks of what man did versus what God did in response to the signs and miracles that Yeshua used to prove who he was. See, man, as unbelievable as it sounds, judged Yeshua. And they condemned him. Many ordinary Judean Jews, in conspiracy with the high priests and the Roman governor, had Yeshua nailed to a stake and killed. But God reversed their decision. Humans killed Messiah. God put life back into him. 
Humans put Christ into the grave. God rescued him from the grave. Humans despised Yeshua and thought him worthless. God exalted him and placed him at his right hand. But now Peter deals with a matter that Jews then and modern Jews today continue to wrestle with. The issue of the relationship between King David and the Messiah. Judaism has different takes on this matter, so there's no consensus. Now some hold that King David himself will either be resurrected or perhaps reincarnated in a different body. And this is why Judaism in general works very hard to find David a perfect man who never sinned. A happy fiction to be sure according to the scriptures. So with that in mind, we can begin to comprehend why there was great interest, but no doubt much disagreement, within this crowd of Jews that was listening to Peter as he goes on to explain his view of the relationship between David and Yeshua. So in verse 25, Peter begins this topic by invoking a psalm of David. Psalm 16, 8-11 is quoted. And because in the New Testament, follow me, because in the New Testament everything is rendered in Greek, we find a few minor differences between this Old Testament quote versus how we find it in the uh, this Old Testament quote written in Greek in the New Testament versus how we find it in the original Hebrew. Here it is from the Old Testament. I always set Adonai before me, with him at my right hand, I can never be moved. So my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my body too rests in safety. For you will not abandon me to Sheol, you will not let your faithful one see the abyss. You will make uh, me know the path of life. In your presence is unbounded joy, in your right hand eternal delight. So what we find if we compare the two is that they are close but not exact. The Hebrew speaks of eternal delight in God's right hand. It's not there in Peter's Greek quote. But what's Peter's point of basing what he's about to say on these few verses? The issue is, as I mentioned a few moments ago, much of Second Temple Judaism believed that King David was the Messiah and thus would somehow return and reappear as the Messiah during their day. Peter needed to explain that this was an incorrect understanding. And he would use logic and history and some more scripture, even David's own words, to prove his point. So in verse 29, he lays it out. David died and he was buried. In fact, Peter points in the direction of David's tomb that was likely at that time on the eastern slope of the city of David visited by virtually every Jew that ever made his or her way to Jerusalem so of this fact there was no dispute and his tomb made itself evident but says Peter David in addition to being a king was also a prophet Judaism certainly agreed with that and so when there was a prophetic scripture 
about the Messiah and David's name was included, it was not referring to David himself, but rather to one of his descendants, a literal descendant, not a reincarnation of David. So David could not possibly have been the Messiah. But Yeshua, a descendant of David, is. What's the proof of this? Again, Peter says, David was buried. His body is in a tomb, visited every day in Jerusalem. Christ too was buried. But his body came alive and he walked out of that tomb because the grave couldn't hold him. Even more, while David's bleached bones lay in that much-visited tomb, Christ's nowhere to be found on earth. Because unlike King David, Yeshua bodily ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of Jehovah, and to this there were many witnesses. Further, Yeshua received what the Father promised, the Ruach HaKodesh. And now He has poured out this same Spirit upon His followers. And to this fact, thousands were on this this very day witnesses to it. So in Acts 2, verse 35, Peter quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, stating that the person identified as my Lord in that particular passage will sit at God's right hand. Much of Judaism felt and still feels that my Lord in that passage is referring to King David. Yet, says Peter, it can't be King David because he didn't descend into heaven. He's dead. He's buried. Therefore, Peter says in verse 36 that the whole house of Israel, meaning Judah and the ten tribes of Ephraim Israel, needs to recognize and acknowledge that Yeshua is the Messiah the prophets and King David spoke about. Now, at this point... I want to pause and change gears. I want to discuss with you a couple of chapters in Isaiah that Peter, no doubt, was using as a foundation for his understanding of the relationship between David and Messiah Yeshua. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 524. much as I'd love to read this whole chapter, we're only going to read the first five verses. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 55, starting at verse 1. All you who are thirsty, come to the water. You without money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money. It's free. Why spend money for what isn't food? Your wages for what doesn't satisfy. Listen carefully to me. And you will eat well. You will enjoy the fat of the land. Open your ears and come to me. Listen well and you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The grace that I assured David. I have given him as a witness to the peoples. A leader and a lawgiver for the peoples. You will summon a nation you do not know and a nation that doesn't know you will run to you for the sake of Adonai your God, the Holy One of Israel, Israel, who will glorify you. The key words in this passage 
as pertains to our subject today are these. I will make an everlasting covenant with you the grace that I assured David. The grace, the chesed in Hebrew, that Yehovah assured David was that a descendant of his would rule forever. The best place I can think of where this everlasting covenant that shows grace towards David is summed up is in Ezekiel 37. You don't have to turn there, but there we hear this. Starting at verse 24. My servant David will be king over them. All of them will have one shepherd. They will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Yaakov, to Jacob my servant, where your ancestors lived. They will live there, they, their children, and their grandchildren forever. And David my servant will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. Since David is not immortal or eternal, then this has to be referring to the very special descendant of David who has become immortal and eternal. Otherwise, his rule forever was not possible. That descendant was Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Now let's switch gears one more time. Let's talk now about Isaiah 56. The reason I want to deal with this now before we finish Acts 2 is because I mentioned last week that as Jeremiah 31.30 so vividly explains this new covenant that is sealed in the blood of Christ that Christianity claims is the foundation for the so-called New Testament church is actually explicitly said to be for the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Jeremiah 31.30 says this, Here the days are coming, says Adonai, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The church rightly points to this verse as the prophecy of a new covenant that will be sealed in Christ's blood. However, this verse is explicit that this covenant is for Judah and Israel. There's no thing here, nothing here about Gentiles or foreigners. And as I've stated many times, there is no such thing in the Bible as a covenant between God and Gentiles. All divine covenants, well, at least after Noah, when there was such a thing as a Gentile and a Hebrew, are between God and the Hebrews. And certainly this passage is emphatic that the new covenant's for Israel. Even so, the church has got it right. The Gentiles can be included, grafted in. But the church has also gotten it wrong by making Christianity a new and separate religion whose God is Jesus and this is to the exclusion of the God of Israel, Yehovah, His Word, the Torah, even the Jewish people in some cases. God speaks in a number of places in the Bible about including Gentiles. 
in the blessings and the covenants He's given to Israel. But always, always, there are caveats and requirements. Among other things, Isaiah 56 explains God's view on this eventual Gentile inclusion into the Hebrew faith. So, open your Bibles to Isaiah 56, which shouldn't be hard to find. Just look on the other page, right next to it, right next to 55. So if you're in a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 525. Well, we are going to read the whole thing. A lot here. Here is what Adonai says. Observe justice, do what is right, for my salvation is close to coming, my righteousness to being revealed. Happy is the person who does this, anyone who grasps it firmly, and who keeps Shabbat and doesn't profane it and keeps himself from doing any evil. Now a foreigner joining Adonai should not say, Adonai will separate me from his people. Likewise the eunuch shouldn't say, I'm only a dried up tree. For here is what Adonai says, As for the eunuchs who keep my Shabbats, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, in my house, within my walls, I will give them power and a name greater than sons and daughters. I will give him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. For the foreigners who join themselves to Adonai, to serve him, to love the name of Adonai, to be his workers, all who keep Shabbat and do not profane it, and hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Adonai Elohim says, He who gathers Israel's exiles, there are yet others I'll gather besides those gathered already. All you wild animals come and devour. Yes, you all you animals in the forest. Israel's watchmen are all of them blind. They don't know anything. They're all dumb dogs. Unable to bark. Lying there dreaming, loving to sleep. Greedy dogs. Never satisfied. Such are the shepherds. Unable to understand. They all turn to their own way, each one intent on his own gain. Come, I'll get some wine. We'll fill up on good, strong liquor. Tomorrow will be just like today. In fact, it will be even better. So here are the key verses. First, a foreigner joining Adonai, it really reads... Yahweh, should not say Adonai Yahweh will separate me from his people. Thus here is a promise that God will freely accept Gentiles who want to join who? Him. It does not say join Israel. Does it? This means that joining God is to make the God of Israel your God. But then there is verse 6 that sets some stringent stipulations for those Gentiles who want to join Him. doesn't say join Israel. doesn't mean becoming Jews per se. He says, 
Gentile foreigners must serve Him, love Him, be His workers, and what else? Keep His Shabbats and not profane them. And if a Gentile foreigner will do these four things, then his or her sacrifices will be accepted. And this is because, he says, God's house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. There are some other fascinating prophetic words contained in Isaiah 56 that aren't appropriate for our study today, but it's sure worth your time to consider alone and in prayer. Let's end today with this thought. Seed of Abraham Ministries Torah class has never advocated for Gentiles taking up Judaism in order to follow Christ. But we've also never advocated against Judaism, except as it regards its rigidity against accepting Yeshua as Messiah and essentially excommunicating Jews who don't do accept Him. However, Judaism and following God's biblical Torah aren't often on the same page (laughs) any more than Christianity and following God's scriptures are. This chapter in Isaiah 56 is a shining example to both Judaism and to Christianity that's long past time to set aside our dubious man-made doctrines and traditions and theological arrogance to rediscover God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. Here in Isaiah 56, we see the Lord emphatically stating His insistence that Shabbat observant is mandatory for Gentiles who wish to join Him. It doesn't say join Israel. I emphasize that part about who or what it is that Gentiles join because this makes it clear that while through faith in Yeshua Gentiles are definitely grafted into Israel's covenants we who are Gentiles are not grafted into national Israel so we don't become Israelites we don't become Hebrews or Jews or the new Israel which is just nothing but replacement theology the Hebrew people who later became known as Israelites will always be God's precious treasure a special people set apart from all others. They have endured more than any people group on this planet for over 3,500 years because of their connection and devotion to the one God, the God of Israel. Indeed, they have stumbled and fallen many times and paid dearly for it, only to get up and repent and have God forgive them and begin anew. And they will always hold a special place in the kingdom of God for that reason. Do you want to come to God's holy mountain? Do you want to be joyful in God's house of prayer in Jerusalem, soon to be the world capital? With Messiah, Yeshua, as the king of the kingdom? Do you want your sacrifice, who is Christ, 
to be accepted by God the Father so that you can be clean and be atoned for? Then God says, serve Him. Love Him. Be a worker for Him. And keep His Shabbats. Not my words. Not my rules. They're God's. Well, we'll complete Acts 2 and move into chapter 3 next week.